Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our own humanity. This is episode 79, and today I'm talking with Roland Hoy, an art historian who has a new book out on England's queens. It's called The Turbulent Crown. We do talk a bit about portraiture here, so check out the show notes at englandcast.com to see pictures and get the visuals of these paintings. Again, that's englandcast.com. Also, I'm putting the transcript there for shows from now on, so if you want to go back and read something or check something out, you can do that at the website as well. Okay, let me introduce Roland to you. Roland Hoy received his degree in art history from Concordia University in Canada. After completing his studies, he went on to work in interpretive media for California State Parks, the U.S. Forest Service, and the National Park Service. Roland has written for Renaissance Magazine and for Tudor Life Magazine, and he blogs about 16th century English art and personalities at Tudor Faces, which is tudorfaces.blogspot.com. Well, I, my interest has always been in Tudor portraiture, especially the Six Wives and Anne Boleyn. I mean, she's a little problematic because we don't have good paintings of her. The paintings that we have of her, you know, the famous one with the bee necklace, they're actually from the Elizabethan period and the early Jacobean period, like James I. So people say, well, you know, it doesn't really look like her. It can't be her because it was painted long after she died. But my argument is that they were mass-produced during Queen Elizabeth's time, so therefore there was some kind of stamp of approval about that painting, that likeness, okay? And there were people at her court who were, you know, the more senior members who served her father way back then would have remembered what Hamblin looked like. So therefore, I think it's a legitimate image, even though there are different contenders, like there's two Holbein sketches, which um, one of them, she actually has blonde hair, so I don't think that's her at all. You might, I don't know if, uh, I think your viewers might know it. You're, you're not sure, your listeners will know yeah, it. Yeah, I'll add it and, in the show uh, notes an, as well. Yeah, and it's another one, but, you know, who knows. But I, my bet, it's the, uh, the famous one that works. I think that's her. The Black Book Garter image, I came across that in a footnote because I was researching the Six Wives like I always do. And it was buried in a footnote uh, in this journal from 1866, you know, like ancient times. Yeah, just one mention saying that, oh, this lady of the garter has an A-B pendant, so, oh, it's Anne Boleyn. But, you know, nobody ever thought about it because it's buried in a footnote in this kind of obscure academic journal and from 1866. So I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, and I tried to look up the image, and all I found was, first of all, uh, was this black and white one, which I thought, oh, that's kind of hard to tell. Then eventually, um, the people at Windsor Castle, uh, the St. George's Chapel, did put the image online in color. And I thought, oh, wow, yeah, that's, that's an AR there. So my argument is that, well, you know, it was the black book was made in 1534. 
when she was queen because she was crowned in 1533, uh, so 34 works. And there is also an image of Henry VIII as Henry V. So the, you have a situation where uh, the modern monarchs are playing older counterparts. So if Henry VIII could be Henry V, the image of the lady uh, is supposed to be Queen Philippa, who was Edward III's wife from the, the late 1300s or whatever. Uh, well, you know. And that would I be think, Philippa of Hainault. I just want to put that in for Yeah, that's her. Yeah. yeah. So my my thinking was that uh, Lucas Hornbell, the artist, you know, used her as the model for Queen Philippa. She has the AB there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Queen Philippa, but it's also Queen Anne Boleyn because of the AB. Yeah. Yeah. And they're dressed in modern clothes. It's like a modern court, even though they're they're supposed to be in, in uh, medieval times. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Really so I I think that's an interesting find. So uh, it's uh, it's out there. So I think people, from what I've read, seem to think, yeah, it probably is her, and it's most likely it is uh, Anne Boleyn as Queen Philippa. Yeah, interesting. So mm-hmm. your background is in art history and yep. the portraiture of this time. Can you tell me, and this is, I, I wrote this in my email to you too, when I think about art from the visual arts from 16th century England, I always think about portraits and not these kind of landscapes that you see in Italy mm-hmm. and other, well, is that true to start with? And if so, why? I think for the Tudors, yes, because it was just not that concern for landscaping. It just wasn't their thing. And I think you also had artists at the court who were experts in portraiture, like Holbein. I mean, he did design some jewelry and uh, architectural elements and stuff like that. But his thing was portraiture. I don't think he did landscapes. If he did, there were very few. So he had artists who whose specialty were was portraiture. And the Tudors were, you know, starting with Henry VII. I mean, you know, he's this new king with this new dynasty on the throne, and he, you know, he defeated Richard III. So he needed to establish himself and his family. So that was through painting, through, through likenesses of his family. There's a painting of him and his family at prayer. So therefore, again, the concern with presenting my my new dynasty through here's what we look like, here's who we are. So Henry VIII took that, and then you know he had these. Um, miniatures done in the 1520s of himself and his uh his first wife at least and a few members of his court his daughter was one of them and then when Holbein came on the scene I mean you know he, he's this, this excellent artist I mean of course Henry did exploited uh Holbein's talents to the extreme so can you give me kind of the um <laughs> the the broad overview of of painting and I guess the the visual arts, which would be the painting and the portraits and whatnot during during this time period. And then the thing I always think that's interesting about Tudor England is right smack dab in the middle, you've got the change with Edward to being really Protestant and then back to mm-hmm, Mary with mm-hmm. being really Catholic. And that, yeah. those years of, of turbulence, I know at least in music, made a really big difference with the, the mm-hmm. liturgical services and, and how that was done. Can you walk me through kind of how what art was like at the beginning of the 16th century and then how that changed by the end and what, if anything, the Reformation, how that affected it. And I know that's like a huge topic. We could do like yeah, multiple I mean, could, shows I mean, on that. Art, is, art could be decorative. It could be for religious reasons, you know, painting saints and just to glorify God and whatever. Uh, I think the big interesting change was art as propaganda during, starting with Henry VIII. And a little bit with Henry VII, too, you know, with the, the, his painting of his family at prayer. So that's like, you know, we're the new dynasty again. But it was really Henry VIII who I think um, 
realize the potential of art as propaganda. So, for instance, you have the famous Whitehall mural, which shows him on one side, his wife Jane Seymour on the other side, and his parents above him. So that's the idea of, you know, and the painting was like life-size. So it was, again, um, somebody said it was, you know, people who saw were abashed and annihilated by this amazing giant painting. So that certainly had an effect of glorifying himself and his dynasty because his parents were behind him. Like, you know, they started this dynasty. I'm the continuation of it. And my wife was on the other side. She will be the mother or she is a mother's or yet. I don't know. We, we know it was painted around 1536. So 1537. So she might have given birth already, but regardless, uh, the idea is that my dynasty will continue through her. And you had a lot of anti-papal paintings and artwork under Henry VIII. You have pictures of, uh, the apostles stoning the Pope, and that was known to be in Henry VIII's collection. And uh, there's another painting with Henry VIII on his deathbed, and then he's pointing towards his son who's sitting on the throne and you know, saying, he's going to be the next king, so our, my dynasty is continu- continuing on. Don't worry about it. And in the background, you see these, um, these king's men pulling down a religious you know, Catholic-themed statue. So that was probably done during Edward's time, because during King Edward's time, there was this big... Uh, iconoclasm, you know, destruction of religious images. They're, they're idolatrous. They're, they're superstitious. They're horrible. We don't need them. They don't glorify God. You know, we have churches that are, we strip them of everything. All that beautiful stuff under, which his father actually still retained. I mean, Henry VIII is very Catholic, even though he didn't like the Pope. You know, he kept all his Catholic elements. He did get rid, rid of some of the more superstitious stuff, like Oh, you know, the, the vial that held uh, the blood of, you know, Jesus. And we, he got rid of that because, you know, that's fake. But a lot of the, the images he retained, but under King Edward, I mean, that, that stuff is gone. Do, do we have any kind of record of what was lost during the, the time? I, I can imagine that some stained glass windows, perhaps. Oh, yeah, certainly and, stained glass and windows. And some altar pieces and things like that. Altar like, pieces, yeah. I would recommend uh, to your listeners this book I have it in my hand right now. It's called The Elizabethan Image. It's by Roy Strong, who was uh, the director of the National Portrait Gallery uh, in the, from the 60s to the 80s, I believe. And there's a section he's entitled Art and Anti-Art. And he has these wonderful images of statues with their heads chopped off. And that was deliberate. I mean, people went around during the time of King Edward chopping off heads off statues. And also uh, defacing religious images that you would have a panel of, uh, you know, Saint So-and-so, but their faces would be scratched out. But luckily, I mean, some of the stuff has been kept. I mean, who knows? Maybe the monks, you know, oh, the, the, the king's men are gone. Let's hide this stuff. We'll hope for better days. So some stuff has survived, and these are evidence of the iconoclasm that had occurred during the time of King Edward which actually continued later on again when Queen Elizabeth, his sister, became um, queen. She actually actually had to make a proclamation saying, you, you stop that. I mean, you know, we, we need to protect this stuff. I mean, okay, we're, we're a Protestant country, but, you know, this is getting out of hand. Right, because she was very similar kind of to her father in terms of liking some of the kind of the, the liturgy or the kind of... Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she was Protestant, but she had some, you know, she liked some of the older stuff. She actually had a crucifix in her chapel, which shocked people, especially her puritanical... Members of her court and her counselors, you know, this is horrible. I mean, this is idolatry, but, you know, she's queen. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, so she just keeps some of the older elements uh, in her chapel. And, um, you know, who knows? I mean, who knows what her inclination was? Was it to please the people and kind of like take a middle way saying, you know, I'm not this, I'm not this. I'm here to please 
or was it the you know that's her I I really don't like this and I like this. Yeah, well, she kept the the whole music side of things going with the you know some of the greatest. Well, I guess that lets them we get into the Elizabethan yeah. glory age of, of music was, and art as well. Yeah, and she was smart. I, she maybe and her counselors in conjunction were smart about using art as propaganda. So you have these images in the later part of her reign where she you know, she's in her sixties or in her fifties. She looks like she's twenty five again when she came um, on the throne. Uh, this lovely young woman and as opposed to what she actually looked like you know and that was to say that and all the queen is young she's she doesn't age she's like england she will last forever she will prosper she's not a woman who's pushing 69 and and will be dead in 1603 (laughs) right you know so yeah. tell me how she controlled that like what what were some of the ways that she controlled the way her image was used well, you had somebody called a sergeant painter, which is like the official painter to the monarch. So that was a person who was allowed to take her likeness. Then he would do a, you know, a, a facial likeness of, of the monarch. And then these would be replicated, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of times, sometimes with different costumes, different jewelry. But it's the same, which you call a face mask. It's the same face, but with different outfits and different maybe backgrounds and accessories. So that's how it's controlled. You had an official painter who was allowed, this one man who was allowed to rep, to take her likeness and replicate it. Because there were a lot of so-called illegal paintings of the queen circulating in the earlier part of her reign, in the middle part of her reign, which she didn't like. The government actually had to ban them and said, you, you have to destroy these. They're an offense to the queen. I mean, we don't know what these look like. I mean, what, what, what does offensive mean? But it was so much of a big deal that the government had to ban them and destroy them. And I'm I'm remembering. I feel like there's one very famous portrait of her towards the end. I think it's a black and white. It's like a wood cutting or something. I I have it. Mm-hmm. I can see it in my head right now. But it, she looks very old, and it's very rare yeah, that you yeah. see her, her like that. So, so that image was done by an artist called Isaac Oliver, and he was part of the I guess the newer trend of artists who were interested in t- in taking likenesses that were more realistic as opposed to someone like Nicholas Hilliard, who did all the wonderful, beautiful miniatures of her, where she's you know, eternally young, I'm the goddess Cynthia, I'm the goddess Diana, I don't age, I'm forever beautiful. But he was more realistic. So there are these images that survive of her looking, what she looked like when she was uh, in her late 60s. Uh, they, she probably didn't like them, and he probably was not in great favor, and the ones that did survive was, were the ones that sort of snuck under the radar, so to speak, and survived. Tell me how these images, both for Henry and, and for Elizabeth, how would they have been used? Why, why were they painted, um, I presume, like early on, maybe for marriage negotiations? Or, but did, tell me about how when you have a, a portrait, like the Armada portrait or something, or the Whitehall yeah. portrait, mm-hmm. like what, what were they seen to be doing and what was, what was their purpose? Well, to glorify themselves and to glorify an event. So you have the picture of Queen Elizabeth, uh, the Armada portrait where she's sitting in this wonderful ribbon outfit with this, you know, this big giant hoop skirt. And behind her, it's like a little comic strip in the back where you have a story. It's, it's almost sequential about how the Armada was defeated. So it told a story on one hand. Like You have to not only look at the painting, but read the painting. So you go from, uh-huh, 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 oh, that's what happened. And, you know, the woman who is responsible is the woman sitting in the center. And where would these so be hung? Where would it be hung? Like, would it be hung where ambassadors could see it or? Probably, you know, most likely it will be hung in a palace where it, it's, there was some access to it. It might have been hung in her private chamber. I think they were meant to be seen. 
Because that's something that's very public, I think, that you don't want to just put in your own bedroom and where I'm the only one who gets remembered, the Great Armada defeat in uh, the 1580s. You do want people to see that. But we don't know because we don't have records saying where this was hung, where this was placed. For instance, the famous Whitehall mirror, there is controversy about where it was placed in a palace. Was it in the king's private chambers, which very few people had access to, or was it in a more public place, let's say, right above his uh, presence chamber where he uh, greeted the ambassadors and his court? We don't know that. So it would be interesting if it was placed in his private chamber where you know, people were not really meant to see it, but only himself. So maybe the tutors also had a concern about art being private, too. Mm. Yeah. And what about um, like a step below the below the king and Elizabeth? Uh, I'm, I'm remembering something. I saw a picture of uh, Bess of Hardwick and Hardwick Hall and how there was one hallway that was all these different kind of portraits of that she would collect. And I'm wondering, like, what um maybe i i think that's what i remember i but tell me about yeah, what yeah. what do what are nobles doing with portraits at this point well in queen elizabeth's time especially they had these what you call long galleries so they were just a long gallery and on the side you would hang paintings of the the kings and queens so you had sets going back from let's say it could go as far back as william the first going up to the present monarch queen elizabeth so on one hand, it shows you off as a person of art, of taste. I'm a connoisseur. I love art. I can afford art. I'm wealthy. I have taste. And also it demonstrates the family's ongoing loyalty to, a, to the royal family. You know, William I, you know, oh yeah, my ancestors served under him. And then now I serve under the present monarch, Queen Elizabeth. So it's a great way to show off your loyalty, especially when the queen visited you. Oh, there's my portrait. Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, so these they were manufactured sets back then, like the kings and queens. They're like uh, baseball cards. You how, a, yeah, I was going to say like trading cards. How funny. Trading cards, exactly. except they're on the wall. Wow. And so were there yeah. artists who specialize? Who would like? Would they mass produce them at all? Or like they I mean, actually I know they were mass. They were mass produced prints in the early time of King James and in time of Queen Elizabeth, you had these prints of monarchs. They were like little pinups. I mean, they had a market for them where you would go to the, they actually would say where you could buy them at the bottom, like, you know, the, uh, the, the cross by St. Paul's or whatever at the very bottom. And it was, uh, drawn by so-and-so and then engraved by so-and-so. And it's like, it, here's Anne Boleyn. And you, people would buy them and collect them, believe it or not. So there was a market for ordinary folks to buy I guess the modern equivalent would be pinups of kings and queens. Yeah, it's like, you know, we can't afford these panel paintings because they were expensive back then, okay, to have someone, you know, commission a painting. So they were, interestingly enough, collectors of prints even back then. Wow. And how big were these prints? They were small. They're like under 8 by 10. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And how much would something like that cost for the average, like a, a, a week's salary, a day's salary, like if you were... Mm, that you were... I wouldn't know, but okay. because they were mass-produced, I mean, if you want people to buy them, you price them reasonably. Yeah. yeah. That, that's my thinking. Yeah. I, I don't, because they're mass-produced, it can't be that expensive. They're printed, you know? How interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Mm. Of course, you talked about Henry the Eighth being, and a little bit Henry the Seventh being a kind of... a 
starting this kind of patronage of the arts and having his portraits done and the propaganda. And then the same with Elizabeth on the other side. What about mm -hmm. in the middle there? What was going on with um, with Mary and with Edward uh, in terms of art? Yeah, about those two, there's a wonderful quote by, and let me find that, Horace Walpole, who was a connoisseur uh, of the arts and he collected art and he, he wrote books. And he said this wonderful quote, under a minor prince and amidst a struggle of religions, we are not likely to meet with much account of the arts. And historians call the reign of Edward and Mary and Queen Jane, if you want to put her in there too, as the mid-Tudor crisis. The struggle of religion where neither Edward nor Mary lasted on the throne for very long, so therefore religion was not settled. There was a constant fighting over who's right, who's wrong. Is it Protestant England or, or Catholic England? So when you have those situations where uh, you don't have peace in the country, things are unstable, it's not a great time to be commissioning art. And plus, you have to have the money for it. And we know that after Henry VIII died, the coinage of England was not in great financial shape. He spent all the money that, that he derived from the uh, dissolution of the monasteries. You know, he just stripped the monasteries of their gold, their their, their treasures, their, their plate, you know. And the land that he took from them, and which there wasn't much left, believe it or not, when he died. Well, he and tried, to, coinage, make, he tried to use it on building boats and war with France, huh? Exactly. He had this very, you know, kind of useless war of France in the last years of his life. And people say that was because he felt betrayed by Catherine Howard, his fifth wife, who, uh, who was accused of adultery. And it was this big thing to, I need to prove my manhood again. And uh, I need to go to war and be this great warrior king rather than this big, you know, this, this cuckolded man. So who knows? And uh, so by the time he died, the coinage was the base. You had coins which were not worth the value of, of, of the, uh, the, the face value. And this problem was not solved until the, the ending time of Queen Mary. She tried to reform it, but I don't think she went very far. And it wasn't until the time of Queen Elizabeth that she finally rectified the, the coinage. You know, a pence will be finally worth a pence. It will have the content of silver that it will have. So she took in all the bad coins and then... Uh, produce better new coins. And believe it or not, she actually made money out of it. I don't know how that worked, but uh, she did. <laughs> so therefore, if you have a government which was ca cash-strapped, they're not going to go pay for the arts. And also, which was, something that was very interesting about Queen Mary was that because she wanted to change the kingdom from Protestant England back to Catholic England, she wasn't very successful or she had no inclination of using art as propaganda, which I found and other historians have found interesting. You know, why not use art and say, yes, her, you know, use my paintings to say, yes, we're back to uh, Catholicism. Isn't that wonderful? And it's the, the, the proper thing. And But her paintings just don't say that. You have these pictures of her, her portraits. They're just her sitting sometimes, holding a rose, looking at the viewer, looking very plain. I mean, you wouldn't even think she's a queen. There's no kingly slash queenly attributes in a painting saying that this woman is the ruler of, of England who has restored Catholicism in the land. No, it's just very plain and kind of reflecting of her personality. She was a very honest, direct woman. She didn't care for glamour, so therefore her paintings, you know, um, showed, this is who I am, take me for what I am, that's it. So I think that was a, a loss, a shame for her that she did not use the potential of art to glorify herself, to to uh, glorify the return of Catholicism, to, that she's continuing her dynasty. She didn't do that. 
but Queen Elizabeth did in the second, in the middle and later part of her reign with with these paintings. You know, I'm the rainbow goddess. I'm standing on the map of England. All these sort of things. And Edward as well. It was not an exploitation of the arts. I mean, there were there are paintings of him. Uh, the most he tried to do in terms of promoting himself, we have these full-length paintings of him standing like his father facing the viewer. Like, I am the continuation of Henry VIII. I'm this puny 10-year-old, 12-year-old, but I'm, I am king, you know, with his hands on his hips and, uh, you know, the big cod piece in the center <laughs> as well. Yeah, so, uh, so in terms of artist propaganda, um, under Edward and Mary was not, not successful and not something that was exploited. And you mentioned how the portraits were more popular and there wasn't really a landscape sort of scene under Henry and that maybe by the end of the Elizabethan period that was starting to change a little bit. Was... You see them in the background, but it's, uh, there are not many. There are not many. You have a painting, let's say Queen Elizabeth uh, confronting the three goddesses. There's a painting uh, of that where uh, she's overwhelming Venus, uh, Hera, Juno, that is, and Minerva, Athena. She's more beautiful than them. And there is a background in the back, but it's not the focus of our attention. It's such such a lost opportunity. I wish there were more, you know, paintings of London at that time period or or whatever to really get a sense of it. There are maps. There are maps and there are panoramic views. But I believe these are more. These were done by foreigners who came to England. I mean, England did not create in the time of the Tudors great artists. There were few. There were there was Nicholas Hilliard and some obscure ones. Uh, John Betts, I think, was English. And these names that we hear the names, but we don't really know what they did. And it was Isaac Oliver, but I think he was from France. His fa- his family were French Huguenots, I believe. So there were not a lot of great native artists. They were all imported because England is an island country, and because after when Henry VIII cut himself and his kingdom from the rest of Europe because of the Reformation, that you know the the break with Rome, you cut off the influence of the countries who are more, let's say, advanced in the arts. You you sort of isolate yourself. Can can you tell me, well, I don't know if this is your expertise or not, but can you tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about um, the architecture in terms of Henry building his palaces and kind of what you can share about that? Oh, yeah, he was a big builder of the family. Um, His children did not build. There was just not the money and there's not the inclination because they inherited all these palaces and buildings and homes from their father. There was no need to, first of all, and also I don't think there was the money to build. Henry VIII, we know, did build this wonderful uh, big new palace for himself called Nonsuch in Surrey, which actually I believe was not completed when he died. And there are drawings of it and uh, images of it in later uh, years after the Tudors, and it was a magnificent uh, building. Wasn't it that given to like a a king's mistress or something like that in the end? Yeah, yeah. One of I think Charles II's mistress, Mrs. Castlemaine. I think it was her or somebody. He gave it to her, and uh, she was cash strapped, I believe, because of gambling. So he she, she just tore it down and sold. You know, here here's a terrace. Take that. Here's a here's a, a potted plant. Take that. And here's a cornice. Here's a uh, Here's part of the wall. She was selling parts off and eventually just fell into decay. And it's like nothing left. I believe when you actually go there, it's probably just a field from my, my understanding of it. There was just nothing left. What a shame. Um... It is a shame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So other than building non-such, Henry D. did expand and refurbish the palaces that he inherited from his father, Lake Greenwich Palace uh, along the river. And also he uh, refurbished uh, York Place, which was he seized or was given by Cardinal Wolsey. So that became Whitehall, which was his big, uh, you know, the big show place. And it was Hampton Court, of course. So these were inherited buildings that he expanded on and that he he, um, he added on to. And what did he do? This is just a separate question because you just made me think yeah. about it, how Hampton Court is. That's very close to Richmond Palace, which his father had built. What Did Richmond Palace fall out of use? or I believe so. I think it's yeah. the same story as Nonsuch. I don't remember the story offhand, but... Either it was destroyed by you know some a fire who knows or it just fell into disuse. I mean, which happens. For example, you had the royal apartments in the Tower of London, uh, which which are next to the White Tower in the center of the of the um, the whole fortress. Those are gone. That was the royal palace area. We know that Anne Boleyn stayed there for her coronation. They were actually refurbished and they spent a lot of money to redecorate that set of buildings for her. But by the 1600s, the later part, I believe it was, they were all gone. And now when you go to the Tower of London, it's grass. You would never know that there was this stretch of buildings from the White Tower down to what's called the Lanthorn Tower, which is actually a reconstruction as well in, from, um, in the time of Queen Victoria, that there was this wonderful stretch of buildings that housed the royal family. And they did not refer to it. It fell into disuse because... Whoever was king by uh, by the time of the um, the stewards, they just did not have the inclination to stay there, so they fell into, into disuse, into disrepair. So uh, they found better use for that section of, uh, of of land, so they were torn down, which is unfortunate. It happened. So because of yeah, you take that analogy, yes, these palaces, uh, which were you know wonderful showcases, beautiful things back then, they years afterwards completely gone, mm-hmm. completely. Such a shame. So also, I don't know. I have no idea if you know anything about this either, so I can edit this out if you don't. Um, Do you know anything just in terms of architecture um, about like the the priest holes from the cat, like Nicholas Owen and and all of that? I find that whole thing fascinating. Do you know anything about like, did you study that at all? Uh, Not really, but, you know, isn't it interesting? You have these all these movies where all the kings or the queen, where Queen Elizabeth's guards coming and then the priest has to like hide in this little hole and do mass in this tiny, tiny room, which is like the size of your closet and, and, and hold master. But they were, these were real situations. It was so dangerous because by the time uh, of the 1560s, 70s, Catholicism was, was considered traitorous. You know, to harbor a priest or to convert someone or become a Catholic yourself, it was illegal. I always think it's such a shame that Bloody Mary is considered bloody because of all the Protestants when Elizabeth did it as well, the same sort of thing. It's just she doesn't, she gets to write the history. Yeah, I mean, she did her share of executions too. Yeah. 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 And was spread out over a longer period of time and and, uh, Mm -hmm. wasn't all, yeah. Yeah. I find Nicholas Owen a fascinating character. I just wondered if you had studied him at all. Um, so anyway, let, let's get into your new book then. Tell me about your new book, because I want to make sure we touch on that as well, because oh, sure. you have a book. Well, it's called The Turbulent, uh, Turbulent Crown, and it covers the queens from uh, Elizabeth of York, Henry VIII's mother, down to her granddaughter, Elizabeth I. So Elizabeth to Elizabeth, like bookends. Yeah, I thought I would be interesting to write because to my knowledge, there has not been a book covering the Tudor queens that way from Elizabeth to Elizabeth. 
with the six wives thrown in. I mean, they were queen consorts, but you know, they they were queens nonetheless. Uh, so I, I thought it'd be great to write about that, and I my interest is in the six wives, of course, and I thought it'd be fun to write. Yeah. So, um, who's your favorite queen then? Do you have a favorite? Oh, Anne Boleyn. Really? You know that every, everyone's favorite. <laughs> she is so interesting. She is so interesting. <laughs> That's funny. She's controversial. I mean, you know, yeah. there's so many things that people. Uh, a lot of people identify with her. I find, this, you know, you read stuff on social media. People, uh, she's a rock star. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is interesting because this is a new phenomenon, I think, that popped up in the 2000s. Because I remember before that, there was just not a lot of interest in her. Mm-hmm. Or the Tudors, I think, that started with the movie Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett. Okay. That really brought a revival of interest in the Tudors because before then it was the, you know, the, uh, these kind of masterpiece theater slash BBC TV series, the Six yeah. Wives of Henry VIII or Elizabeth R. They were great, yeah. but I think audiences being, a newer audience needed something refreshed. Yeah, and it was just kind of a perfect storm because you had the Philippa Gregory, the um, other Boleyn girl. Oh, yeah, yeah the Tudors out, are right? very hot now. They're yeah. hot. And there was a period I remember where there was you know, really no interest in them. There were very few books coming out. I mean, oh, there's an Anne Boleyn book. We have to buy it because it's, you know, there hasn't been one for five years or 10 years. Now it's, it's almost, I think, almost every six months, every month almost, whether they're published with a, a, a big publishing house or self-published or however, whatever means people get their books out there. But she's a, she's a hot property. You know, people find her, people love her. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I just recently um, interviewed Alison Weir because she has the new book coming, the historical fiction on Anne that's being released. Uh, oh, yeah, yep, I, I know about that. Yeah. yeah, and she was talking about how people see Anne as an early feminist icon. And, you know, can you really put the label of modern of a modern feminist on a 16th century woman and yet there there was that kind of in europe at the time with the uh, christina pizan and the different feminine or Mm -hmm. you could almost call them feminist writers at the time that were influencing the way um women were seen and it's just she's certainly um she's certainly changed put changed things around she england is i mean has the religion it has because of her yeah yeah and that's relatively new phenomenon as well from the i i suppose around the 2000s because in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, she did not have that reputation. She actually had a bad one. She was like this, you know, the evil stepmother, the wicked queen. And that was the, the idea of her that was popularized back then. All the history books you read, oh, she's this, you know, not very nice lady. And I think that was because the scholarship on her was not as advanced as it uh, has been recently. I mean, we know now that she's... Um, uh, she was a patroness of religious reform. She was interested in the arts and um, a lot of things like, along those lines where before there were no studies about that. She was simply this woman, you know, she's a hussy, she's an adventuress, and then she got what she deserved. I mean, that was a thinking uh, uh, in the earlier in the 20th century, let's say. How much of that do you think Which has to do with the fact that historians were men then and there's now women that historians? That is true. That is true. Yeah. There are more women writing about her now. And one book which really uh, shed new light on her life was this uh, very famous uh, book, Anne Boleyn, her, her Life and Death by Eric Ives, which is, is you know, the, the Bible of, of Anne Boleynism. You know, everything you wanted to know and, and more, too, <laughs> and more, sure. which really, 
established her as a player in politics, not just this, um, you know, the, the king's mistress and um, stuff like that. She was active in reform. She was active in this and that. And she was a, you know, a powerful woman. I have to admit, it's just funny because now I've had two conversations about Anne Boleyn recently. And I, I've always, mm-hmm. I, my eyes kind of glaze over when I think about Anne Boleyn because it's like she's just so everywhere. Yeah, um, she everywhere, yeah. I yeah. just kind of, I'm just kind of like, I, I, I never was a was a huge fan. I, not for any... Right, just, and you know, you have TV shows recently like Ugly Betty. Yeah. You know that show? Yeah. Uh-huh. Ugly Betty wore a, a Anne Boleyn bee necklace. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's just yeah, like and it was, I don't know if it was meant to be an in-joke or not because I don't think... Everybody in like middle America got it, but you know the yeah. people who do know. Oh my God! You know she's yeah. wearing an Anne Boleyn necklace. It's so funny. So that's her, so Anne Boleyn has creeped into popular culture. Yeah, my yeah. favorite's always been Anne of Cleves because she seems clever. But <laughs> oh, she was. I think people. Uh, she deserves more credit than people give her. She was a smart lady, and you know there's a lot of nonsense about. Uh, Oh, she's so lucky when she was divorced because she led a life of leisure and uh, and she survived Hindiate. But the truth is, she was miserable when she got divorced. Yeah, she didn't want she to get actually, divorced. Sorry, she didn't want to get divorced, did she? she no, she didn't. She, she and did. she kept seeing herself as the rightful queen of England. Like after he, she did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when Catherine Howard uh, was executed, she wanted to be wife number six. Believe it or not, so she was you know wife number four, but she wanted to be wife number six. And she was actually missed when uh, Henry VIII married Catherine Parr, and she said something snarky. Oh, you know, she's not, I don't know why he married her. She's not as beautiful as I am. I think her perspective of Henry VIII was different from uh, the other wives. I mean, she felt, you know, I, I, it was my destiny to become queen. And uh, I was divorced, not because he didn't like me for whatever mysterious reasons, was because I had this pre-contract with somebody else. I mean, I believe her thinking was that she was divorced because of some legality about her being pre-contracted to someone else before. And I think she might have believed that, hence her thinking that, well, you know, that really doesn't matter. And once, you know, Catherine Howard's dead, let me become queen again, because Henry VIII liked me, which actually was not true. And she was upset that she didn't become queen again. So I think that's a big misconception about her, because everyone goes on saying, oh, she's so lucky. Uh, she's the luckiest wife. She got a, she, she didn't end up, end up with her head chopped off, you know? Right. I wonder but how much very, of that has... very willing to be married again. I wonder she how much of that again. has to do with the fact that both her and Catherine of Aragon were the foreign princesses who were groomed. Now, she wasn't necessarily groomed to be a queen like Catherine of Aragon mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. but she yeah. was still groomed for a, a great marriage and to, and saw herself as, you know, somewhat above... She was, she was this foreign foreign princess kind of thing. I wonder yeah. if she mm-hmm. saw herself in like a more dignified kind of way than these homegrown brides and thinking. Oh, like- definitely. I mean, there were uh, arrangements for her marriage after Queen Jane Seymour died. So these great preparations. And I think she didn't understand why she was divorced. And I, again, her thinking was that it was over a silly pre-contract uh, piece of legality, which is actually not legal, and uh, I should become queen again. And there was an interesting quote uh, by the a, a imperial ambassador saying that uh, when Queen Jane died, uh, Henry VIII was not interested in looking for a foreign bride, because if the foreign bride ended up being like Anne Boleyn, like this, you know, this horrible woman, it would be hard to get rid of her. So therefore, we should marry, you know, locally. Uh, we cannot marry a foreign princess because her family, her, her uh, powerful 
foreign family would get pretty miffed and uh, declare war on me. Yeah, and he had to work out that divorce, didn't he? That was he, that took some strategizing on his part to not tick off the the German states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was this whole thing about oh, you know, she was she was not a virgin when she came to me. She smelled bad, and uh, I, I can't stand her. But I think that was just a lot of excuses to make the marriage, to make the divorce actually possible. And I don't think Anne of Cleves ever heard all this because this is all done like you know uh, behind closed doors. These these horrible reasons that Henry VIII gave out about uh, why the marriage uh, cannot go on. So hence she did not hear any of this. So. She thought, oh, I'm getting divorced because of this, this contract thing with this, this person, Francis of Lorraine, uh, when I was a child. Oh, it doesn't matter because, you know, I never married him, so I, I should be queen. I am queen. Catherine Howard's gone, so let me become queen again. Something you don't expect women to say around Henry VIII. No, no, no. <laughs> Many thanks to Roland for taking the time to talk with us today. Remember, go to the EnglandCast website at englandcast.com, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com, to get the links to buy his book and to find out more about the paintings we covered. Remember, you can get in touch with me in a couple of different ways. The easiest is at the Facebook group, facebook.com slash englandcast. And you can also tweet me at Tesco at T-E-Y-S-K-O. You can also text the listener support line, which is 801-6-TESCO, 801-6-T-E-Y-S-K-O. Thanks so much for listening, and I will talk with you again soon. Bye-bye. Now we'll go right into the close.